I had been drinking the Kool-Aid so much at McKinsey. I thought we were truly having impact on the most important companies. I had an itch in my operating nerve. So then I left VC for half a decade, only to be drawn back. That was Sabina. Upon at Creandum, one of Europe's leading early-stage venture funds with offices in Stockholm, Berlin, London and San Francisco. Creandum backs European enterprise and consumer companies and are currently investing out of a 500 million euro fund. Creandum have made more than 100 investments, including notable companies like Spotify, Plio, Cree, Depop, iSettle, Kahoot, Vivino and Klarna. At Creandum, Sabina focuses on climate and health in the Nordics and DACH region and has invested in the likes of Passionfruit, Scapin and Prewave. Welcome to the first episode of a brand new format of the EUVC podcast. We put a lot of time and effort into making it an even more exciting listening experience and we hope you enjoy it. If you love our pod, drop us a review, follow the pod and subscribe at EU.vc. And now some words from our beloved sponsors. How are you currently reporting to your LPs? Is fund administration taking hours? Are you getting lost in spreadsheet version control? Well, Flow solves all of these issues and more, allowing you to unlock the power of your fund's data by consolidating your work streams onto Flow. Book a demo to learn about Flow's portfolio and fund management features and transaction infrastructure at flow.io forward slash VC. F-L-O-W-W forward slash VC. Expand Northstar in Dubai is the ultimate startup and investor connector event. Taking place from the 15th to the 18th of October at the iconic Dubai Harbour. It is the must-attend networker for any tech investor on the lookout for the next game changers, disruptors and innovative minds that are challenging and sculpting the tech of the future. Showcasing 1,400 plus startups from 100 plus countries, Expand Northstar in collaboration with the Dubai Chamber of Digital Economy unites founders, VCs, tech gurus and ecosystem enablers, creating the world's largest startup event. Register now at expandnorthstar.com forward slash EUVC. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This is a union of values. values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new new beginnings. Let's start acting, 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 acting. This show is not investment advice, and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the European VC podcast. As usual, I am David, one of your co-hosts. We're joined by Andreas, the hype man, Sabina. Let's start things off with how did you get into venture? Care to share that story with us? So my journey into venture, it's quite serendipitous. I think it's almost the opposite of, oh, I always knew I wanted to do this when I grew up. So I was finishing off my master's in engineering and math, and I actually thought I was going to stay in academia and do a PhD in the math department. But there was something itching. I realized that this environment was not the most social work environment that you would get into. And I'm a very social human being. I thrive collaborating. So I was at the end of a five-year university program, and I just had no clue what to do. 
So in lack of other ideas, I ended up at McKinsey, which was great for many reasons, collaborating with amazing people and travel all over the world. And all over the world uh, took me to the San Francisco office. So after having been a management consultant for about three, four years, I ended up in Silicon Valley. And that's when the bubble burst for me when it came to the work as a management consultant. I had been drinking the Kool-Aid so much at McKinsey. I thought we were truly having impact on the most important companies in the world. And then I just saw this whole new world of tech in front of my eyes. And I just felt very strongly that I had to be part of that journey. So I didn't know anyone in VC. I barely knew what VC was, but it felt like a very good mix of getting in touch with this amazing industry of tech, but at the same time, not starting from scratch, but leveraging a few of the tools that I'd learn at McKinsey. And I had no idea where to start my network and I don't have parents in the industry. I didn't have any ins. So I took to LinkedIn where I actually cold reached out to, I think it was a handful of people that I saw had done the same transition that I wanted to do. So they had been at McKinsey for three to five years, and then they gotten into a great VC firm. So it's just pinging them out of the blue on LinkedIn. And one of the people that responded was Lasse Pilgard at Creandum. So it was, it just ended up being a perfect match. They'd been looking for an investment manager for a very long time without finding the right person. So after a coffee with him, I got into the process and then everything was just really quickly into Creandum for me. Not a lot of people got into VC in that route. <laughs> As I said, it wasn't a lot of planning that got me into VC. But then I should say, I, I only stayed for a couple of years from that point. I had an itch in my operating nerve. So then I left VC for half a decade only to be drawn back without, again, without this grand plan of things, but more just the right people telling me the right things at the right time to pull me back into VC. Very cool, Sabine. I love how your story goes from strategic consulting to VC to founder, back to VC, getting real back in. Sabina, do you care to share with us a pivotal moment in your career and how that has shaped you as an investor today? Having the guts of going to a social network and just dare to ask for what you want was really not my way of operating at this point in life. Very early in my career, I wasn't very bold or I wasn't as maybe outspoken or taking up room as I should have been. But seeing that you just ask people and sometimes you're lucky and they actually respond because most people want to help was a very pivotal moment for me in my career. And I think that way of working as a VC, so assuming people want to help and being bold enough to ask them for that help, I think is, it's a key tool when getting to conviction on a new deal as an investor. So I'm very happy I learned that already on my way into the VC job. So I think also what happens if you're someone that has focused on only your career for a very long time, at some point, private side of life catches up with you. And I think I'm in my late 30s. I'm in the years of raising family. And I think that maybe not the one pivotal moment, but pivotal part of my career was having my first child and just 
realizing that if you want to stay passionate about your career, you need to find a way to do more than just your career with life. But I think it's also, it sounds like a cliche, but I think becoming a parent changes you as a human. And I think there's, of course, a true benefit, at least for me, being a very logical person, being very ambitious, being an engineer, to have added a more kind of human and soft side to my way of doing business, not just to the way of life. Take a star. All right, Zabina, welcome to the Take a Stand section. This is where we will ask you to comment on quotes by one of our past guests. And today's quote is, there's too little European growth stage capital. You could counter that statement by asking, are there tons of growth stage companies in Europe that should have gotten funding and didn't? And was that because there was no investors on European soil to spend time with them? And I think to me, as an early stage investor, I know growth and growth and investing from having been on the other side of the table. So having been uh, on the leadership team of a big health tech company raising series C and D and beyond. And my experience is that growth is very much a global market. And most of the companies that are raising rounds of 50 to 200 million euros, they're already operating on a somewhat global market, or at least not super regional. So I think I find it an odd problem, if you think it's a problem, that there's not enough European growth stage funds, because I think there's enough growth stage capital in the world in general. And I do think that there is a lot of attention on Europe since four, five plus years. Right now, we happen to be in part of a cycle where there's not tons of growth activities. But if anything, I think it's more heavily adjusted down on the US side rather than the European side. I think the trends are even stronger, both upwards and downwards in the different cycles in tech in the US and Europe. However, I can see why people think that European growth is more immature because European venture is more immature than the US equivalent. European tech is more immature. So of course, as the ecosystem develops, the later, later part of the, of the ecosystem will naturally be a little bit lagging compared to their US counterparties. I'd love to deep dive here a bit with you on this topic. And I'm going to quote you here, which is, or partially quote you because it's a written statement, not a quote, but where you say that VCs don't provide as much value as they think, but founders would benefit from listening more to their investors. So I'd love to hear you reflect on this and share your insights on this topic. I see it as a true privilege to have been on the fundraising equation on both sides of it. So starting out on the VC side as an investment manager about eight, nine years ago, then having raised capital on sitting on the management team of Cree and running a big part of that fundraising process, Series B towards D+. And then coming back 
to be on on the VC side again. And of course, if once you've been long on one of the sides, you start to or the grip of the learnings from the other side are loosening. So I try to remind myself all the time about what the process looks like from the other side. But I think that one of the most, the biggest gap in view of the world between an investor and a founder is uh, how and how much the VC can provide actual value to the company. And... I think both sides are right and I think both sides are wrong when they say, when an investor thinks that I have a pivotal Im impact on all of my companies, what would they do if I stepped off the board? That would be a disaster. While I think most founders, while they respect their investors, they, are, they would not buy into that statement, unfortunately. And being a VC and, of course, spending a lot of my working time with other investors, not only my team, but with other peers, This is a very sensitive topic, I noticed. And I can see that because it's challenging you know, the very core of your existence as, a, as an advisor to companies. But as I said, I think there's truths to both sides of, of the view here. Many would use that view to say, we need more former operators as VC in Europe. And many do claim that very boldly. And So I would agree with you. I think it's neither it's neither one or the, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. But what are your thoughts on the topic as companies mature, right? Because I do think there's a lot to be said about early stage versus late early stage or whatever we want to call it, right? In terms of the profiles of VCs and the role they play here. Yeah, and to your point of we need more operators as VCs, I love people claiming that because obviously they're banging my drum as, a, as an operator gone VC. But I think, and what I've experienced as an operator, people that have only been investors can still be amazingly value-add to the operating side if they just know what questions to focus on and what advice to give and when to stay silent as advisors. So having worked from the operating side, I've had the pleasure of working not only with Creandum, but also with Excel and Index and Project A. And I only have amazing experience working with people from these firms, despite most of them having only been investors most of their careers. I think the one thing that operators and entrepreneurs underestimate is the very overused word of patent recognition. I think it's, if you, as an entrepreneur, if you find the right way to leverage this person that is sitting with a helicopter view, looking at your business, but at the same time looking at 10 other or 20 other businesses in similar stages to see what are the decisions that are important at this stage, what are really the pivotal moments to get to the next stage of company building. I think that's very valuable. However, having seen it from the operating side, I can also, I can really see why entrepreneurs sits with the experience that the VCs don't really know the business as well, because honestly, no one will know the business as well as their entrepreneurs anyways. So that's an easy statement to, to sign off on. But also that decisions that looks very obvious and very easy from the board perspective 
they're not as straightforward when you're in the trenches, when you're on, when you're in the jungle fighting a battle every day. I remember one instance when, as a ship commercial officer, I had the country managers reporting into me, and something that looks very easy to say when you sit on the board to say we need to replace this country manager, he or she is not performing, need to find a new leader. It's very easy to sit and say that, but when you have a local team somewhere three, four hours away on a flight in Europe, you can't leave them without a leader. You can't leave part of your P&L without an owner. And it's going to take you at least nine months to replace that country manager because you're maybe recruiting in an ecosystem where you don't have as many connections. So I think in this case, for example, while, while the decision to replace the country manager is probably the only right one, and the sooner you get going on that, the better, there is also the other side of, yeah, but it's just not, it's not to snap my fingers. I'm going to have to carve out hours every week not only to solve this, but also to solve the nine months of interim hell that happens because we're going to execute on a decision that actually looked very straightforward to you. I'd love to ask you, Sabina, on the whole issue of managing expectations with founders, because I think in the end, that's a bit where, where VCs are not always the best and where founders end up getting caught because they expected something else. How do you go about doing that at, as an investor yourself? What we always say from the Creandum side when we come on board is, we're going to be here, we're going to be your supporters, and we're going to be your supporters both in good times and in bad times. Because having been on the other side, you know how many friends you have when your growth curves are pointing the right direction, and you know how little support you get when things are actually going south. And even if you're building a Spotify or a Klarna, there's going to be years or quarters when everything looks shit. And the last thing you need uh, on the operating side is investors that keeps reminding you of how shitty the situation is. Because I'm sh I guarantee you, the operational team is well aware of the severity of the situation, but you rather need the support. But as at Crandon, what we you know, vouch for is to say, we're going to be there in ups and in downs, but we're not going to operate for you. Some of us have operational experience in some areas, but I think the best advisor is the advisor that knows when to not just give any advice, but to say, I'm going to point you to an operator that's done this, or I'm going to point you to someone that has seen this 20 times before. Because I think it's so easy to sit on the VC side. You're so used to always giving advice and giving a perspective. And you sit there with an entrepreneur, maybe the best thing you can do is not to give your perspective because it's very loosely built, for example. You're used to sounding smart, knowing just very little about a topic. But when sitting with an, a portfolio investment, I think uh, very often I'd rather point to someone else to give especially operational advice. And on that part of pointing to others on the founder side, that means you'll end up typically <laughs> with multiple perspectives. And sometimes 
the VCs on a board will not necessarily have the same perspectives on things. How do you think about your own role as a VC and as part of the board and making sure that you transfer to the founders something that at least is interpretable <laughs> for the founder other than just, okay, obviously my board doesn't agree on this. <laughs> so how do you think about navigating that? Different perspectives is good. I would probably be more worried if you were on a board with multiple investors and 100% of the time they were just nodding at each other's input and advice. Because building a multi-billion dollar business, it's going to be more complex than just everyone exactly seeing the path in front of them. But my way of working is I see that a very small share of my interaction and the input I give to a founder actually happens in the board meeting. Of course, it's a very important forum to have bigger discussion amongst many of the big shareholders in, in the company. To me, the question is not about the board. It's more the f how do you help the founder manage the fact that they have what three, four, five VCs on their <laughs> cap table, all giving different opinions and sometimes giving contrarian opinions that don't align. How do you counsel founders to manage through that? I never want founders to take take my input at, as, at face value. I think I don't think that highly of myself, that knowing that as long as we dance after my music, it's, it's all going to be perfect. I heavily encourage the founders to triangulate and take, take my input as a piece into the puzzle they are, they are laying. And I think this is what I also tell founders before they bring on a VC or before we, we invest is to say, you need to be aligned enough with your investor and you need to know that they're going to let you steer. Because again, having seen it from the other side, if your investors push you to, to make a decision that you don't believe in, it's very rarely going to be well executed and fall out the way anyone wanted to be. So I think that's almost the worst situation you can end up in if you look at kind of company governance. So how do you stop that? One, you bring on investors that you think you are very aligned with in terms of how to build the company, what pace and what risk to take on. But I also, I think as an investor, you need to see yourself as one piece and not the, the one sole right opinion about how the company is moving. I couldn't agree more and couldn't believe more either that, that this is insight slash approaches to venture that we should try and help everyone in the ecosystem live by because it's not necessarily as, as obvious as you say, Sabina, for everyone to, to act like that. But hey, I'm sure it's very easy for me to sit this time around my second VC career. I'm only two years in. So naturally, the companies where I'm on the board have not accumulated big boards yet because we're an early stage investors and I'm two years into this. So I'm sure that give it a couple of years and ask me again. <laughs> I'm sure I have my wish is humble yeah. and probably more, more bitter <laughs> having tried to silence what I think is less, less appropriate opinions <laughs> about the company's trajectory. All right, Sabina, now it's time to give a shout out to a co-investor, Angel or LP, for being absolutely awesome. 
And of course, do share with us the story behind that awesomeness. I would love to give a shout out to a woman named Gloria Bauerlein. She runs, she's a solo GP. She runs Beyond Capital, 20 million euro-ish early stage fund out of Berlin, but investing all over Europe. And I have the pleasure of knowing her first from the operating side at Kry. And then as an angel in the Berlin ecosystem, and now being an LP in her fund and seeing her develop this new early stage brand out of Berlin. And it's, uh, I'm going to sound very old and me and Gloria were the same age, but it's been truly a pleasure of seeing her develop in her career as being a great operator, taking all of her best qualities and becoming an even better angel. And then taking whatever worked so well for her as an angel to become a fantastic uh, solo GP and having the guts of even embarking on the journey of becoming a solo GP here. And I think her superpower is she just has a very, she's obviously super smart, which is a prerequisite for her superpower. She just has a very intuitive way of seeing how business value will be created. Regardless of business models or industry, she's just like a, what's it called, grandmaster in chess, where she can see the company chessboard being played out many years in advance and have a very strong view of whether this is a good business or not. And it's unlike any of the truly amazing investors that I've had the pleasure of both working alongside as an operator and as and on the VC side. Sabina, what have been the three biggest learnings in your career so far? Number one, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It took me many years to realize this. Two, I've seen this over and over. Crisis actually makes you the most productive. And three, back to a theme that we touched upon, I think you, you need to be human to be a great leader. You need to be a good human to be a great leader. I love those. Now let's unpack the first one. It's a marathon. You need to find a way to do this all your life. I love this statement because it's very obvious once you've, you've tried to burn out. I know many friends who unfortunately have, but I'd love, to, I'd love to ask you to tell us a bit more how you came to this finding and why you hold it such, as such a centerpiece to you. I'm a very impatient person and impatience together with ambition, I think, drives you to just fill up, not 100%, but 150% of your time and your energy all the time. And I think it's natural to come in your, to your career with this mindset of always leveling up and just have to make it to the next level, have to make it to the next promotion or next employment. And then, then I'll find the balance. Uh, because most of your life, you're in school always have a natural kind of leveling up process. You start high school, you go on to college, you maybe do your master's, 
So you've been trained all your school years to having this natural progression and just pushing through, getting done with things and getting to the next level. But very early in my career, it started to take a toll on my health to run at this truly speed. But I kept pushing for a very long time. And although I'm a very passionate person, I think if you're always running on 150% of your capacity, you're going to lose that sense of passion, regardless of what you have in your dream job or not. So I think it's, I think the most of the, this is a very strong cliche, right? It's a marathon. And I'm, I don't know if it's an advice that someone can internalize without really experiencing it. But I think to me, I just, I reached a point where it was not doable. It was either leaving tech or finding a way to do it, balancing it more towards 100% of my capacity rather than way more than that. And I think if I look at what I want, it's obviously to find a way to do this all my life. But also if I just look at the pure business perspective what would my firm want me to do would they want me to run at the speed so that after a couple of years I'm so bitter at my situation I would just leave and go find other employment or would they want me to rather find a way where I can be my best self but with the right level of input of my energy of my time of myself we spoke earlier today about the you becoming a mother as well has that meant something to coming to this realization as well? I know it has for me as a father, at least. It, to me, it puts a very clear blocker on my, even my every day, it puts a very clear blocker at 4, 4, 4 p.m. most days where I say, okay, here, now I'm not working for two or three hours because I'm taking care of my kids. Then after that, I might get into it again if I can get them to sleep and so on, but I need to be there for my children. I'm curious to hear if that's also been part of, part of laying the groundworks of this realization. I think becoming a parent forces you to find that balance or at least pushes you really strongly. If you haven't been thinking of it before, something comes into your life and it's obviously going to be a top priority for you. That's not work. And I think that's probably going to push the most workaholic person into adjusting their, their work schedule a little bit. I think it does in two ways. I think it does because it comes in as a very clear top priority. And of course, there's going to be weeks where you do a deal and work is all you're thinking about. But in the long term, it's something that clearly competes about top position of your attention. And I think the second is also, you realize how fast the years flow by when you're in the middle of your life and that on your kids. So you can't say, hey, I'm just going to push through two years until I become this next level of my career, because then your baby is not going to be a baby anymore. It's going to be a toddler or your toddler's not going to be a toddler anymore. Your toddler's going to be in school. So I think it also puts, puts a pressure on here and now rather than I'm just going to push through to the next phase of my career. And now I want to bring in David for the next one, because the next one was crisis makes you the most productive. And to me, David is always the master of disaster. <laughs> he will drum up a disaster at any time where I'm like, oh, no, we're all good, bro. <laughs> so David, first of all, 
I want to invite you to just hear your view on that because I'm sure that you've got a perspective. I'll do something fun, which is I'm on Creandum's website <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm taking a quote on the page uh, about Sabine, which says, as an entrepreneur, it's essential to find the right balance between infinite opportunism and brutal prioritization. I would describe our organization as Andreas is the infinite optimism and I am the brutal <laughs> Anyway, Sabina, over to you. We'd love to hear uh, what, what brought this to this realization and, and give you a deep dive. We are in a time where uh, probably most entrepreneurs that runs a company that's more than 50 people have just gone through a couple of tough iterations on right-sizing their company. Also looking at our portfolio, even companies that are have 300 million euros in the bank and are doing tremendously well have been pushed to really look through, okay, how much did we hire during these crazy years and do we need to right-size? And I don't think I've heard anyone saying that they think their team lost productivity by getting rid of people, but very much the opposite, right? You get rid of 10% and you become more productive as a company overall, not just per person. And it sounds very harsh because obviously these decisions are having big consequences for the people that are no longer on the teams and it's very tough decisions in general. But although these periods of taking these decisions or periods of crisis in a company is very tough to go through, my experience is that what doesn't kill you, make you stronger is very true in these situations. And I think my experience from the operating side, I had the pleasure of working in a company where one of our superpowers as a team was we were very good at getting all hands on deck. And Cree is an amazing company. It's a $2 billion valuation. It's turning over 200 million euro. But of course, there were many crises along the way with anything from not having enough doctors to staff the service. And you start, start to train your uncle that's 75 years old to try to use digital tools so he can jump into the service. And this kind of everyone leaning in to solve one problem. I have such a positive experience from handling this crisis and then seeing how you come out on the other side. Another great example from Cree is that if, as a company relying on the public healthcare system as a payer, of course, your business models are quite tied to political decisions. So in a blink of a politician's decision, you sit there with a big part of your revenue being shifted or even gone, and you need to solve that. And I think it's terrible when these things happen and you don't sleep, but seeing what you can accomplish in very short time when you really focus, I think it's truly amazing. I think it's good to bring in because there's going to be more crisis all the time in your companies. And I think it's the best thing that can come of it, but I think it's very hard, is to have that learning of how a focus creates this productivity and try to apply just a little bit of that focus into 
the non-crisis periods of company building. Or you can do like me and trade take crisis every now and then. I don't think that's all bad. I don't think that's all bad, to be honest. I think it will make your team very productive. You know, eyes on the prize. We're drowning here. We can solve one problem. It's going to be very obvious to everyone what problem that is to solve. It can be very easy to prioritize when you have a crisis goggles on. And now, the quick Welcome to the quick fire round, Sabina. We are now going to ask you three quick answer questions. And the first one is, if you were stranded on a desert island, what book, music album and luxury item would you bring? I think it's hard to think in albums these days if you're not like a true music nerd because your word doesn't involve in albums. But <laughs> if I'm on an island, I probably want some happy folk or something to help me stay on the positive side of, of complete isolation. So maybe first aid kit or something that, yeah, keep the moods light. Yeah, and book? I think it's going to have to be a historical novel. Ideally, no, a very heavy 1,200 pages one that's uh, historically accurate that can keep me busy for a long time. I'd probably bring a notebook, notebook and a pen for journaling. I think that's, for me, it's, it's a tool I use very often when, when I can't structure my thoughts. So I would assume, assume it would be needed if I'm alone on this island. What advice would you give your 10-year younger self? If I thought I would be able to internalize it 10 years ago, it would definitely be that your career is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So don't sweat the small stuff. I think too many times my younger <laughs> self have been awake at night for small stuff that in the end didn't really make a difference. So maybe I, with that advice internalized sooner, I probably would have ended up in the same place, More but probably with a little less, <laughs> fewer gray hairs. What are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe fundraising? I think this is an extra difficult time, not only for founders, but for VCs, where this is super huge correction of VCs is coming. And I think, unfortunately, I think it will have an impact on especially some of the younger funds uh, out in Europe long-term. I'm not the expert here when it comes to LP relationships, but I think one thing that, that I've seen work well in fundraising, both entrepreneur to VC and VC to LP is one thing, and that is just do what you said you were gonna do. That's all. You don't need to over-deliver on your promises, if you consistently deliver on what you said you would do, that's worth everything for someone putting their money on you. What is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in venture? I guess on the same theme as before, there's, I think, uh, we're an industry of impatient people. So things are always urgent. And especially now with so many early stage investors, so many great early stage investors in Europe, there's always going to be more, more great investors that want to do the round that you want to do. So while it's, an, it's a job where it's always urgent, it's also a very long game. And I think that's the, 
That's the difficult balance as a VC. You need to run on very urgent things, but you also need to back off and see this long-term perspective because it's sometimes going to take years before you get feedback on whether you've taken the right decisions or not while it was urgent. All right, everyone, if you enjoyed this episode of the European VC podcast, drop us a review, follow the pod and subscribe at eu.vc. I'm Andreas, the hype man, joined by my dear co-host, David, the LP syndicate lead. Thank you so much for tuning in today and can't wait to see you all out there. And now some words from our beloved sponsors. How are you currently reporting to your LPs? Is fund administration taking hours? Are you getting lost in spreadsheet version control? Well, Flow solves all of these issues and more, allowing you to unlock the power of your fund's data by consolidating your work streams onto Flow. Book a demo to learn about Flow's portfolio and fund management features and transaction infrastructure at flow.io forward slash VC. F-L-O-W-W forward slash VC. Expand Northstar in Dubai is the ultimate startup and investor connector event. Taking place from the 15th to the 18th of October at the iconic Dubai Harbour. It is the must-attend networker for any tech investor on the lookout for the next game changers, disruptors and innovative minds that are challenging and sculpting the tech of the future. Showcasing 1,400 plus startups from 100 plus countries, Expand Northstar in collaboration with the Dubai Chamber of Digital Economy unites founders, VCs, tech gurus and ecosystem enablers, creating the world's largest startup event. Register now at expandnorthstar.com forward slash EUVC. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. An alliance. This, this is a union of values, of values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem, problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, acting, acting.